Hello everybody, good afternoon and welcome to another online Power Planners Assembly. Uh, I'd like to start off by thanking our supporters this year, that's our friends at Aegon, Barnet Waddingham, Just, Energy Wealth, Parmenian, Timeline, Transact and Wealth Time. A couple of housekeeping notices for you, we're going back to some more in-person events. So we had the big day out uh, a couple of weeks ago, which if you came along to that, I hope you enjoyed it. And we've got two more in-person events coming up soon. On the 20th of October, we've got the other London Assembly uh, happening in London, funny enough. Uh, and on the 10th of November, we've got Assembly in the Middle happening in Warwick. So if you'd like to get together with some fellow power planners um, from around your area, go onto our website, book yourself a place and come along. If it's your first time here, it's great to have you along. If you haven't followed us on Crowdcast yet, then please hit the follow button at the top of the page. And we can then let you know what we're doing and when we're going live and all sorts of things like that. These are very relaxed uh, and informal interactive sessions. So you can ask questions in the chat on the right hand side of the screen. You can say hello. You can answer questions, add comments, whatever you like. There's also a ask a question button on the right hand side of your screen. You can pop a question inside there as well if you want to. I'll keep an eye on those and bring them up as we go. So feel free to chat amongst yourselves. Looks like it's working already, but just to test it my favorite time of the year now because we can start eating mince pies so question is <laughs> have you started eating mince pies yet and if not what's wrong with you uh, <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, I, i've started on mine already i'm starting on the marks and spencer ones this year just to go right have you have time. you finished the easter eggs richard oh yeah they go within a day you know, they, they just don't, <laughs> don't last at all um so uh, there we go someone's made some that's good i'm impressed by that one so this is being recorded uh, and a replay will be available afterwards if you want to come back and watch it again. And we've also got a podcast running now. So each episode of our online assemblies can be downloaded and listened to wherever you like. Now, we've got a poll running at the moment. So on the right hand side of the screen, there's a little bar chart. Um, if you could click that, uh, go in there, have a look at the question and register your bit. Um, we'll come back and have a look at the results very shortly and then pop back in the chat room and keep going inside there. So. Today's event, um, capacity for loss is a key requirement for suitability, but we're not sure it's fully understood and being assessed as it should be. So today we're going to be talking about capacity for loss and attitude to risk. What is the difference? We'll talk about the concept of client balance sheets, our wealth ratios, safety margins, and come around to the fact that it's all about asking the right questions, uh, as with a lot of things in financial planning. And I'm really pleased to be joined and welcome back to the assembly, Patrick Ingham from Palm Money. So, Patrick, for people that don't know you, please introduce yourself. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, I'm Patrick Ingram. Uh, I've uh, been with Parmenian for uh, over a decade. I'm a, uh, an erstwhile accountant, an erstwhile DFM manager, an erstwhile MD of an advice business. And uh, I'm really uh, pretty passionate about financial planning uh, and supporting it, uh, talking to advisors about and power planners about how they do it, um, and basically helping to chart a future for the profession into a world in which particularly retirement planning and the complexities of retirement planning are going to be central to, uh, to, the, to the industry. And in that context, this discussion is really, really relevant. Yeah, brilliant. It's great to have you along again, Pat. And um, I'm just checking out the mince pie chat. Um, now, Halloween's far too late to start mince pies, Dylan. Um, and Riz, yeah, I, I have Spotify on all day on a random playlist, and it started playing Christmas music as well. I don't know what's going on there. Um, right, let's have a look and see what the poll says. Um, so, 68% um, say they write a description without a number for capacity for loss. 28% say they quantify it as a number, such as a falling value. 
um, and three and a bit percent of people say they do something else. Uh, luckily, no one said we don't do it, uh, which is goodness. So for the three of you that do something else, it'd be great to see in the chat what you do do, if you'd like to share it with us. Um, but we're going to kind of talk through that in a bit more detail now. And Pat's prepared some slides for us, uh, just a few, which would be a kind of an aid memoir to stimulate discussions, and we'll make them available um, at the end. So let me bring those up on the screen now. Uh, there we go. And I shall just whiz on a bit to, um, there you go, we know, we know Pat, that's yeah. great. There we go, yeah. Brilliant, yeah. Um, well, <laughs> the, the first thing to say about capacity for loss and regulation is that the phrase only appears three times in the rule book um, and only only once uh, in COBS. Um, so it's not a not not actually a defined term. You can't find it in the regulatory glossary, um, but um, it does it does appear in um, uh, in the in the context of Conred, which I'll come to in a minute. Um, it's clear from uh, COBS 9A33 that it's different from attitude to risk. It's a different um, cons concept. Um, and that um, difference is made very clear um, in Conred to Annex 13. Bit technical, but what that was was the um, the the annex which dealt with the arch crew issue, and that's where the regulator in the in the guidance notes makes it very clear that capacity for loss is not the same as attitude to risk. So it's a different sort of um, measure of a client situation. Attitude to risk, in my opinion, is about their psychology and their experience uh, and their, under their understanding of, of investment management. Capacity philosophy is an, an analytical aspect of financial planning. It's the amount of money that you can, um, you can afford to lose without affecting your lifestyle. Ergo, it's got, got, got to have some numbers somewhere around it. Now, you can see this greater clarity if we skip on to the other... Um, uh, appearance of, of the of the phrase, the third appearance of the phrase in regulation, which is in the British Skill Pension Scheme DBAT, um, and there there the uh, the regulators made a, a, a pretty good stab at a, at a at a working definition. It's worth just um, reading that out. It refers to the consumer's ability to absorb falls in the value of their investments. If any loss of capital would have a materially detrimental effect on their standard of living, this should be taken into account in assessing risk that they're able to take. So I think that sort of draws the distinction between attitudes risk out very, very clearly. Um, and um, implicit in, in, in that is the, is the idea that this assessment is forward looking. Um, it looks ahead to what might happen. Yeah. So you've got to, 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 to understand someone's capacity for loss. You've got to be thinking about what might happen to them in the future. And my little asterisk there relates to the fact that uh, we are all that much more concerned about what might happen in the future now with consumer duty, where thinking about foreseeable harm is a is a is a is a duty on on everyone working in financial services. So looking ahead, thinking what might go wrong, um, it is that much more uh, under the spotlight right now. What this definition doesn't particularly help us with is understanding what exactly is meant by loss, because um, you, we could we could discuss that point uh, for for some time. Does it mean absolute permanent loss of capital, or does it mean uh, the the effects of volatility? Um, I mean, nowadays um, uh, 
uh, with re better regulation and more professionalism around the place, people aren't losing all their money very often anymore. I mean, it, it has happened, you know, in the last few years uh, with some funds, um, but it's not it's not like people are being cleaned out. But people are badly affected by volatility, especially when they're drawing income out of a portfolio, which is the theme we're going to be we're going to be sort of coming back to again and again in this in this conversation. So next slide, Richard. When we think about who uh, in the in the client world might be most interested in forward-looking assessments, I put my gold star next to people thinking about DC retirements. I'll just uh, uh, jog you through my logic there. Um, the, the business owner client is probably um, either sitting on a very substantial capital sum having sold a business or is generating uh, good returns out, out of their business and, and their, their focus is on uh, maintaining those returns out of their business or on you know handling their, their their capital sum so they're they're kind of like much more in the here and now people with complex needs are probably being sorted out with insurance arrangements and the rainy day money group of, of clients uh, are are not um, you know, taking significant risks that would put them in the way of worrying about capacity for loss. But the DC retirement segment, which I think we all agree is going to be more and more important over the next uh, 10 years or so, um, forward-looking assessments are absolutely essential. So um, through that lens, a lot, of, a lot of what I have got to say, um, I think comes, in, comes into focus. So if we flip onto my next slide, uh, Richard, in in simple terms what we're going to be what we're talking about here is the risk to people's lifestyle after um the effect of the the benefit of their secure income their db income or their their state pension as a as a factor or as a percentage of the net present value of their their wealth um now uh you know i i think um uh this is here we are going to be uh, touching on the the usefulness of cash flow modeling because what cash flow modeling um, uh, can exhibit to you is what your um, your the present value of your your, your future returns as uh, as, as and included with your balance sheet against how much you're going to be looking to take out out of out of your pot so with with the interest rate reversion that we've seen over the over the last year and a half um uh assessing the present value of your wealth your future cash flow uh streams um i think is is even more relevant than it's ever been in the in the past also because there's some there's some good news inherent in that which is that future you know future cash flows cash flows long in in, in the, into the future are will be more heavily discounted than they've been over the last last ten, last 10 years it's less expensive to provide for some of those future cash flows because returns from from you know interest interest rates have have risen you're not you're discounting them by a lot by a lot more so that's my um sort of nub uh uh analytical point there um, I've just on my next slide, Richard. I've sort of I've fleshed that out a little bit, little bit more. So what I'm what I'm saying here is, think of your net present value of your wealth as the as a sum of your balance sheet plus your future cash flows, negative and positive, uh, divided by your discount factors, and that gives you your 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 the present value of your of your wealth, all all things considered. Now, as we as we're looking ahead, we've got to reflect how our assumptions feed into those sums. Um, and this, I know, will be 
very relevant to the work that power planners do researching and sourcing those assumptions now there have been some important changes in the marketplace um, that um, have happened over the last 18 months two years which we need to take into account and i'll i'll go into those one one at a time the first obviously obviously is the interest rate reversion with rates uh, shooting up to five and a quarter percent and may, maybe they'll go a little bit higher um, but this has obviously had a dramatic effect on, on, as I said earlier, discounting future cash flows, and it's also um, having an effect on returns. Um, secondly, uh, inflation has um, has come back in, into the into the mix in a big way. Now, this is um, uh, the uh, Ford implied inflation curve from the Bank of England website, which I find a, a terrific terrific resource in this area for for sourcing sensible assumptions. And what that's showing is that the uh, the implied the, what the market thinks inflation is going to be like over the next 10 years is something in the region of three and a half percent, you know, which is well, well above the, the stated policy objective um, uh, and uh, a terribly important factor to consider when you're looking at um, a people's lifestyle. Personally, I don't think doing cash flow modeling in nominal terms is very helpful at all. I really, I really strongly believe that that looking at the effects or the anticipated effects of inflation in the numbers and working with real uh, returns rather than uh, nominal returns is is a lot more helpful in answering questions about whether you're going to be able to afford to maintain your lifestyle, which is, you know, which is the test here uh, around around capacity for loss. Yeah, I think there's two things I might bring up on on that inflation yeah. point. There. First of all, about yeah. the nominal versus real returns. I know that. A lot of cash flow tools that power planners use will, will give you the option of showing either or. Mm. Um, and I understand why they do that. Um, but I'm completely with you. I think if you're doing a, a forecast over any period of time in the future, but particularly mm. a longer term, mm. you end up with telephone numbers if you do. That's exactly that. right. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. mean anything to the client. Yeah. You know, it might show you're going to have a million pounds when you're 65, but that mm -hmm. might just buy you a Ford Focus and a packet of crisps. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. not the same as a million pounds today. That's right, yeah. Showing it in today's terms um, is really important. Mm. The second thing mm. is uh, we, there was a discussion at the, the Big Day Out all around assumptions. Um, and one of the questions posed was about with the, you know, the inversion in the last 18 months or so, should we be changing our long-term assumption for inflation? Um, and the general opinion was, well, it, it's only a short-term thing. We're going to stick with long-term returns. And a lot of people were saying that we're going to stick with the, the policy forecast, which is the 2%. Um, but I think this this chart you've mm. got here, the Bank mm. of England website, well, I love the Bank of England website, mm. it's absolutely mm. fantastic, um, mm. is really useful because that's showing over 20, 30, 40 years, you know, it's going mm. to be running at 50, 75% more than the, the, the policy target is. So yeah. I'm, I'd be more comfortable using that as, a, as an assumption for inflation in cash flow forecast myself than yeah. the policy statement of 2%. So yeah, exactly. No, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the point here is that's that's not just a made, those aren't just made up numbers or um uh, you know uh, somebody's opinion. That's what the market reckons. Yeah, um, and so it's it's that's a it's a hard data point, um, and that's the the implicit in the valuation of your investments today is that market assumption about what inflation is going to do. So um, to to bring that number down because of um, a policy objective is to give yourself a kind of make believe extra return. You know, um, and I don't think that's really very, very smart in um, 
in uh, in, in in dealing with, uh, as you say, um, the long term forecasting for people's retirement income. I think one of the reasons that that people kind of have been comfortable with 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 telephone numbers over over recent years is investment returns less inflation have been incredibly strong because of QE. So actually, you know, where was where was where was the harm? The, the, and I think I, I can understand that. But um, uh, I think we're in a different we're a different space now. Um, and I think we'll we see that in the in this next slide. Um, I've got when we're talking about market about anticipated market returns, which um, I flashed up here. These are these are Vanguard's uh, forecasts for, for you know um, uh, their standard their standard portfolios in U, in GB terms. They they do this in dollars and euros. It's all the major currencies. But this is this is their their assumptions for the variability. Of, of portfolio returns and these are nominal numbers um, so you know they are they are looking at returns around about six six and a half percent for mid-risk portfolios after the effects of inflation over a 10-year run um, and you know uh, there's a message in that um, if you knock off the inflation and you knock off charges you know it's a quite an austere picture of what's rational to assume in terms in terms of returns, on top of which you've got to consider the effects um, that the returns themselves are going to be variable. They're not going to be they're not going to be sequential. They'll come in lumps, they'll come in bursts. They'll they'll have they'll be dead 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 patches, and there'll be continual volatility throughout. So um, this has a big this has a big bearing on um, on the outcomes that people re receive in terms of especially. In a, in a drawdown policy for the for the reasons of sequence risk, which I think I think I, I won't go into that in too much detail, but that that is a, that is the issue. If you start in a bad bad spot, even if you get six and a half percent before before taking off effects of inflation, you 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 could be um, knocking if your returns ended up at I don't know four before inflation. That could be that could be a bad place to be. So it's I think it's important to be real with numbers when you're when you're forecasting over long periods of t long periods of time. Um, but these these are I think these are helpful numbers, and these also reflect what the capital markets think. So they're 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 also a good a good place to start building your 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 assumption set from. Um, my sort of fourth fourth area, um, which I think is um, kind of pertinent to the the un, one of the underlying challenges, in particular of advising around retirement, is that there's um, this this uh, emerging interest i think in longevity um, and um, when we look at longevity i think the key the key point i want to make is that the average numbers are desperately misleading because of the effects of wealth this this rather chilling chart shows the um difference in in, in experience of of later life between the top and bottom decile in the uk this is um, some work that Age UK, Age UK put together. Um, uh, you can quite clearly see that the top top uh, uh, decile do um, uh, a lot better in experiencing good health much later into life. In, in other words, they are going to live longer um, because uh, of the effects of wealth, the choices it gives, the the, the all the all the factors which go into promoting uh, well well being um, and the, the removal of anxieties, uh, particularly around around money, um, it helps enormously. So um, when it comes to 
you know, forward looking assessments around life expectancy, it's kind of like um, important to tune into the fact that the average data from ONS, which now still cuts off at 100 on their standard life tables when uh, actuaries are all forecasting to 110 and to 120, um, that, that also needs, needs to feed into the equation. And I think it, I mean, let me get to the, make my, my key point here. It feeds into that really important discussion around annuitization. We, we were talking about this to you and I before the, before the show, Richard. I mean, the, 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 the one key point in this really is that discounting annuity from investment advice needs to be um, done in a, in, a, in a much more thorough way than it needed to be done two and a half years ago um, for all, all the reasons we've, we've been discussing. Um, uh, we're in a, we are in a different set of um, uh, different world in terms of uh, the, the level of annuity, the likely returns on investments, the likely pace of, in, of inflation, inflation and also the longevity of, of, of wealthier clients. Now, I put that all together in my head as being, um, uh, you know, a challenge. But actually, um, I, I'm still a firm believer that for people with capacity for loss, drawdown is the, is the, way, is the way to go. But um, um, perhaps we can um, uh, come, come to our next slide and talk about that some more, Richard. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, we've been talking about um, uh, the, the need to be analytical about the amount of um, uh, surplus capital people need to pursue their financial objectives in, in terms of numbers, in terms of producing a, um, an analytical calculation of the present costs of their future plans, which is the, you know, the net, pre net present value calculation, and how to get assumptions that they're going to make that stack up and look sensible and be, be well researched. There is also, I think, also an, a, just one extra leg to this, um, which um, makes it a little bit more, more of a subtle uh, conversation, which is that um, surely part of capacity for loss is also the ability of an individual to adapt their lifestyle and adapt their plans. Um, that would might might come under attitude to risk or attitude to loss. That's their psychology. If they were facing a difficulty, if they were facing um, a slightly negative outcome, but I would suggest that actually, if people are sanguine about being able to adapt their plans, and for example, if they've um, if they're a, somebody who's had a uh, a career as an owner manager and have had ups and downs, and can honestly put their hand on their heart and say yes, if if things went against us, we would know what to do. We've done it before. We could tighten our belt, and we wouldn't we wouldn't lose composure. Then I think that's that's um, justifiably can be part of the discussion. But I think it only overlays the analysis that needs to be done in in, in making that professional judgment about what you think the surplus number needs to be to justify a risk based approach rather than say an insured approach to um, meeting your financial needs. Yeah, um, there's, there's there's a lot to unpick there, isn't there? Yeah, I, I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to go back to the um, to the previous slide about the um, the kind of de deteriorating rate of good health and yeah, also yeah. longevity. That that is really important when you come to work out the the present value of future mm. cash flow needs because how far in the future are you basing your calculation? Um, yeah, and this is this is an area where I think um, 
defaults tend to prevail. So, yeah. um, you know, it, until fairly recently, it used to be, well, we, we do the forecast for the biggest number the cash flow tool has in the system, um, which, which for many years was yeah. 99 because they couldn't have all three-digit ages, um, mm. which is quite interesting. Um, and we've recorded a video, actually, um, with an actuary about longevity. Um, I can't remember if we've published it or not yet. Perhaps um, Ian will pop a link to it in the chat room about this. But mm-hmm. it was just one of the team that, from Barnett Waddingham that advised um, pension scheme trustees um, about longevity, those kind of things. Um, and it's really interesting because there, there's been a, you know, a, a massive increase in expected average life um, times for people, mainly due to, to the post-war baby boomers having, you know, decent diets, decent exercise yep. regimes, you know, limited working hours, nice DB pension schemes. You know, but they never had it's a good mm. kind of thing. Mm. And now we're all living off of rubbish, fast food, stress to hell. And like the, 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 the curve has started to come down again. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, it has. Yeah, yeah, it has. Yeah. In many places in the world, you know, the, the average life expectancy has actually started to come down again. So maybe we've seen it peak and it's coming down the other side. But mm. it's really important, um, certainly in my opinion, that you, you have a really good grasp about what longevity does mean for clients. And that's yeah. down to a granular client level because applying, you know, age 100 to everybody is that right? Mm, um, mm. Maybe, maybe I, not. But yeah, I think there's one of the one of the um, issues around longevity and forecasting t- time periods is that, um, and it's worth kind of surfacing this, is that most advised clients are probably uh, homeowners. Yeah, and when you when you put the value of the home into the balance sheet analysis, you know you rarely do you you find someone says yes we. Will want to consume that value in retirement you know over the next 30 years we're going to we want to end up with nothing because um we're quite happy to 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 mortgage the the home to to boost our income that's not standard you know that's not the standard most people are thinking about the home being a a store of wealth for the next gen the next generation um but it's completely logical to consider it as part of the balance sheet and that produces massive capacity for loss in most financial plans if it, if it is included in, in that fashion. And so that that takes away some of that um, uh, anxiety about needing to ensure for the possibility of living a very great, you know, great number of years over the over the averages. Um, but just to your point about 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 the, the changes in longevity, the, the things that I've uh, picked up are, first of all, the the very great likelihood of women in particular living past 100 you know women in their in their in their 40s and 50s stand very high chances of living beyond 100 especially if they're in those higher deciles in terms in terms of wealth with access to 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 advice of all sorts medical and, and financial and also you know circumstances around their family which are are beneficial to to well to well-being basically you know the support and affection and uh, you know companionship of, of of their of their family which tend to tend to break down as financial uh, situations you know deteriorate uh, further down the the spectrum but also the um although i i picked up you mentioned about about expectations having been tapered back of future gains in um uh, longevity. One of the throwaway remarks that I heard from an uh, academic in, at, at, from Edinburgh University was about 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 cancer is that maybe we can cure death before we cure cancer. Um, the thinking being it's actually a, a simpler problem that the 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 mortality of individual cells 
um, you know, their their morbidity through through cancer is a very tricky problem. But maybe we can get them all, everyone, to live forever, unless of course they die from cancer. So yeah, I think um, the the prospects of people living longer are are very high and do need to be factored into into the equations. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the crumb of comfort, of course, is that, is that as I say, discount factors have risen enormously. So, you know, um, you know, you need less money now to provide for those those potential cash flows in the future. So maybe there's a, there's a crumb of comfort there. Yeah. For, for fairly new, newer power planners, when we talk about discount values, uh, as, as Pat said, there is basically how much would you need to set aside and invest today to Correct, achieve yeah. a certain value in the future? This is the reason why you'll see if, if anybody follows the DB transfer index, which shows the average DB transfer value, that's why it's crashed <laughs> in the last mm, 12 mm. to 18 months um, because the discount factors have gone up so much because it costs less to buy a future yeah. income stream than it did do two, three, four, five years ago. Um, so that's what we're talking about there. There's mm. been a lot of activity going on in the chat room, and I'd like to pick up on a couple of those points there before we get onto some more uh, discussion points, um, Pat. First of all, I want to come back to the results of the poll, which showed an overwhelming majority um, approach cap capacity for loss as a written description as opposed to an analytical number, which I'm not surprised about because we see that as well on a day-to-day -day mm. basis. But I think it's important to differentiate between capacity for loss and tolerance for loss. And I think the two can be conflated quite easily. And mm. that's, mm. that's a danger I see when you're using kind of a, a descriptive way of approaching it. So um, doing the analytical approach means you can quantify, you know, you can afford to lose X pounds, X percentage of your portfolio um, and still achieve your essential income uh, requirements, for example. So that's a number. The tolerance for loss is how you're going to feel about that um, mm -hmm. if it does happen. And the two are really important um, because you can have a mismatch there between the mass and the tolerance either way. Um, I mean, have you got any thoughts around that, the tolerance side of things? Um, yeah, I, I think, um, I suppose the the... the 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 point about that is that um you know uh it's it's supposedly you know when when we all got started with with risk assessments you know when assessing suitability came out in 2011 i think people talked about um risk tolerance as being pretty stable over time for individuals um my my perception i suppose it's a personal perception as well as i've got older is i don't quite believe that where where when the rubber hits the road i'm i'm expecting to become a lot less risk tolerant as i age yeah um and that's going to have a bearing on my financial decisions i'm sure uh regressively i'm sure i'm going to be you know 75 80 years old and having holding more cash than i really need I'm sure as I'm 75 and 80, I'm going to be on that Hargreaves website looking at annuity rates, thinking, oh, crikey, like, you know, 8% looks very attractive guarantee for the rest of my life. I know that's going to be the way it's going to affect me. Um, so I, I think it is, you know, it's deeply psychological. It's not particularly rational. Um, you know, I can be I'll be doing that knowing I've got pretty adequate capacity for loss. But it will be that perpetual tug, that anxiety about 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 it all going hopelessly wrong. You know, catastrophization is the problem, which is, I think, a, um, an absolutely crucial reason why people go to financial advisors. You know, what financial advisors do preeminently well, I think, is actually maintain people's composure around those anxieties um, and displace them um, and earth that negativity. 
um, which is terribly helpful for, for better outcomes, obviously. Um, because if we were all if we all give into those very about you know uh, potential potential loss, where would we all be? <laughs> you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be we wouldn't be investing in the global stock market, for example. Um, we would be in gold bars and and shotguns. Yeah. There's a lot of chat about cash flow tools, which is always good to see because I love a good cash flow tool. Um, and we've done quite a few uh, online assemblies about that in the past, looking at different tools and comparing them. Pat's appeared in, in a video mm. talking mm. about uh, cash flow planning tools. So we'll, we'll, if you go on our resources website, just type in cash flow, you'll see those. But if you'd like us to do another video uh, session on cash flow planning tools, because there's been new tools come out, new features, new abilities, then pop a link in the chat um, and we'll see what we can do about that one. Interesting comment we had quite a while ago um, from Sam talking about um, Basically, market returns are out of our power, so we expect the market could drop within the recommendation. We would use the amount of emergency cash the client has to assess whether they have a high or low capacity for loss. And that, that triggered two thoughts for me. First of all, your comment then, Pat, about mm. you know, getting to, uh, to a, a later age and having too much money in cash. Mm. Um, and also, I wanted to relate that into the, the slides you had up earlier on about mm. this um, kind of balance sheet in excess wealth. Yeah, I want yeah. to talk a bit more about that uh, to see, you know, what is a safety margin? Um, mm. and is it just measured in cash? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's two things going together there, which are slightly conflated. One, one is um, the quantum of your margin. Yeah. And the other is what to do with the margin. Now, obviously, the argument for holding excess capital in cash is that you're kind of insured against volatility but what you're definitely doing there is you're in, you're absolutely assuring yourself of a cash-like return from that capital yeah um, and I think those 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 two things don't necessarily follow um, what I think you get to see from looking at your net present value calculations from your cash flow over over time is you begin to establish some some composure around the fact that you can see that headroom fluctuate yeah and of course what happens over, over over time is that it fluctuates but then also over time your your overall net wealth will, will rise and it will rise faster over the long term if you've got some you know risk return in that in that in that headroom space i not really um, a great believer in having it locked up in, in cash. You can be absolutely certain that you're not going to, um, uh, you know, beat your equity portfolio over over 90% of you know 10-year time periods by by doing that. So you're going to be you're going to be insuring yourself about something that you think might happen tomorrow, but in actual fact is probably going to happen in five to 10 years time, and therefore it probably doesn't really make a lot of sense to be that um, that cautious with your excess wealth you know if if you think about it in the in the general general case uh, you know someone someone who's very wealthy has almost all their excess wealth invested in businesses yeah by definition because the super, the super rich um, don't have it under the bed they've got it invested in shares in companies either their own company they started a la big bill gates or because they've got it in uh, in market portfolios you know ca cash is is great for for emergency emergency funds but um who's who's to say that your emergency and your cash flow wouldn't happen at the top of the stock market 
in which in which case you can get your money within within a week out of your your equity portfolio and and uh, have done very nicely in the intervening period of time. So um, I think you can definitely overdo the cash um, uh, allocation, and I don't think it's the perfect solution um, really to to um, to, to, to locking down forever that uh, that capacity for loss issue either. Um, mm. it'd, be, it'd be better to be marginally richer on expectation o- over time than to be than to be than to be holding all your excess wealth in cash. It wouldn't it wouldn't work for me for a, for a start. I don't think. I think um, that brings us right back to the start when you're talking about um, when we talk about loss. Are we talking about total and permanent loss? Are we talking about volatility? Yeah. And I, I think cash Correct. is a good hedge against volatility. If if mm. you're withdrawing money by selling investments. Um, and markets go south for a while, then having a cash reserve mm. then means you can turn off those investments and, and stop yeah, yeah. liquidizing uh, at a loss yeah. point of view, um, yeah. which certainly does help there. Um, let me just explore a bit further this, this whole kind of safety margin and balance sheet, because um, I know that you talk about the fact that if you work out the present value of your mm. future cash flows, which essentially is a liability, so you want to spend this yeah, exactly, money, yeah. liability yeah. set. If you work out the present value of that, let's just keep the numbers nice and round. That's a hundred thousand pounds in today's value, um, yeah. and your net assets is a hundred thousand. hundred thousand. That's the same, basically. Mm-hmm. So your assets mm-hmm. equal your liabilities. That's not really a good position to be in, is it? Because no, no, that's there. that's where you've got no capacity for loss because you're you you know you you you've certainly got a hundred thousand pounds invested invested now, but that's gonna that can change tomorrow, um, and as to, so can your your assumption. So. This is the this is the point at which you know the professional judgment is needed for what that margin needs needs to be relative to the to the liabilities, for 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 your um, your investment strategy to be credible and rational. So in your in your in your in your in your situation there, Richard, if you were approached by somebody who had exactly one hundred thousand pounds and ostensibly exactly one hundred thousand pounds of future income needs, yeah, and no capacity for loss. Um, that person looks to me on the face of it as somebody who needs an insurance solution to that issue rather, rather than an investment solution because they don't have the excess wealth that would allow them the opportunity to maintain flexibility. You know, there's no there's no evidence that they've got that margin of error in in the, in their balance in their balance sheet. Um, uh, a difficult message that one, um, because of course those numbers could be different. That could be a million pounds. You might have a, a client with a million pounds, and on the face of it, it might have a, you know, a substantial amount of of, of liquid wealth or, or or value in their in their in their investment stack, but actually very high levels of future liabilities. So we were talking here about thinking like a pension fund, basically, you know, making match, matching the two things together as, as best you can with with sensible assumptions. Um, and that would be a very difficult judgment to to make about what to do in that situation. And I dare say conversation would come around to doing something about, main, you know, reducing the lifestyle to, to create the margin of error. If you want to maintain flexibility, if you want to maintain that wealth. Um, so that, that does lead on because, to, to, to a question about what is an acceptable safety margin. So if, if you've got a ratio of one to one between assets yeah. and our would you want a ratio of 1.5 to one? Is it more than that? Is it less than that? And mm. what do you think? Well, I mean, I can only talk from, you know, I mean, what, what um, it would be nice to have is a very high ratio. You know, what you want is from an advisor's point of view is people who's, 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 who, where the ratio is, is, you know, uh, for every, every pound of assets, there's, there's 50 P of liabilities. 
I mean, that would be brilliant because there'd be there'd be plenty of plenty of excess wealth there. And in that situation, you know, the idea of it sticking that that extra 50p into cash would, would be nonsense. Right. It would make it would make it would make no sense at all. Um, but you have to be realistic. I think people um, uh, today and over the next 10 years will see less and less people who are so well underpinned by secure income that they can boast a ratio of you know assets liabilities of one to two we'll be seeing a lot more people you know uh, um, at the sort of level which i think is sort of like one to 1.15 you know 15 20 percent you that i think is 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 sporting i think there's nothing wrong with that you know um you know if we're talking about maintaining an investment strategy with that level of, of margin of error uh, if it's a if it's a, if it's a reasonably cautious one, you know, if it's a, if you're talking about balanced portfolios and and uh, you know moderately adventurous portfolios, I think that's that's kind of credible. But it's got to it's got to be you know one penny is not enough. Yeah, it has to, um, you know you need you need you need you need to be able to cope with that slide I showed you, you know, the the variations that that uh, that Vanguard expect in terms of outcomes. It's they're quite broad, you know. If they if they could if they weren't that wide they wouldn't show them as as being that broad but the, but the fiftieth the fifty percent outcome range is big yeah between between four and eight percent and if you're if it's going to be at the lower end of that of that range then you know um, something will have had to give um, something will have to come out of the emergency fund um, something the portfolio will have need to be bigger than it needed to be at the start to to get to you where you want to go. Mm. I don't know if that's where your head is, Richard, in terms yeah, of numbers. But I mean, I would, I'd love mine to be bigger personally. But I, I think, um, I think you know, um, that sort of level I've indicated is sort of sensible. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how many people are actually working out the present value of, of future income streams at the moment. So um, I don't think we're, there's that many people. Yeah, there's probably you and that's about it. Um, <laughs> but I think it's, it's a fascinating way of doing it. Just want to touch very quickly on on the fact about including property on the balance sheet, which you've mentioned already. Mm. Um, just see, do you think we should include like the, the total net equity, or should we say, well, you could equity release X amount, and that's the value we put on the balance sheet? What, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think that's where the um, attitude to risk conversation blends back into this 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 wider piece, because um, if you if you know that it would just be unsupportable to an individual to have a loan on their their home in later life then you've got you've got no there's nothing to discuss but if it's they're open to that suggestion and you can conceive of that possibility then it would be absolutely legitimate to include a proportion of that uh, equity capital in the in the equation which would have probably completely transformed the maths and turned my you know ratio of one to 1.2 into one to 1.5 because as a matter of sort of, you know, it's self-evident that over the last 30 years, people have been shoveling a lot more money into their properties than they have been into their pension funds. Yeah, that's that's where the money's been going. And therefore, there's in general terms, there's a lot, there's a, there's a preponderance of non-income producing wealth in people's balance sheets in the form of their home. Yeah. So if they're if they're open to that idea, even on a modeling basis, then I think that's that's absolutely legitimate. 
Mm. Yeah, we, we do that quite a lot um, when, when we're modeling in cash flows. If the clients mm. are open to that yeah. idea, um, then we'll start to factor in what would happen if, if they do release mm. some of that equity. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> right, I want to move on a bit because we, we're um, rapidly running out of time. Um, no, now I'm enjoying Nathan, this. <laughs> Nathan, Nathan's put an interesting comment in the chat talking about um, isn't this why we build in essential and discretionary costs into plans, which leads us from the DBAT um, from, from the FCA? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've, got, I've got views on that, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I want to talk to you about yeah. um, I mean, you know, the, the propensity for changes in people's behavior, you know, and, yeah. and that comes around spending, doesn't it? Because that's one of the trade offs yeah. here in capacity yeah. loss. So do you want to share some thoughts around that? Well, I mean, I mean, you can see, you can see, you can sort of see why uh, in doing a, a, you know, a British Steel DBAT, you've got to, you've got to be thinking quite carefully about people's spending patterns when you're talking about people who, who are, have been, have been not, not really been advised and may not have a very substantial balance sheet. Personally, I'm of the opinion uh, that actually uh, spending is a lot less variable or, or it's more um inflexible than you'd like to imagine yeah it's so much a matter of habit what you spend money on that in my view when it comes to assessing lifestyle the only thing that can really get chopped are outright gifts of money to favorite children and holiday, big holidays you know i think more or less everything else is you know really tough to deal with yeah so i'm not i don't think that helps to try to distinguish all different sorts of levels of expenditure you know into 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 core into lifestyle into discretionary i think in in a cash flow model the things that you could have to come out of the equation in extremists are the chunky holidays yeah because that is what people want to do with their excess wealth in retirement they want to spend it on holidays and if it if it wasn't there to spend because it made no sense they would cut that before and this is what we've experienced over covid isn't it people have lived without holidays and and, and survived and uh, spent their money on, on other things diy projects or whatever um but no i i i don't think that's wildly helpful i think if you've got an established lifestyle that's what you want to keep hold of and if you've got to trim, it'll be on it'll be on capital things. It'll be on refurbishing bathrooms, pushing those back a couple of years. It'll be about taking out a big summer holiday for the family, um, one year out of three or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, keeping them as treats, um, but fiddling around with working out whether um, you know uh, the underfloor heating needs to turn off or not is really not going to be particularly helpful. I don't think. Yeah, you yeah know. I'd agree with that one. A um, couple of quick questions. Um, is there anywhere we can read about discount factors in a bit more depth? It sounds really interesting. Um, mm. I don't know if there's anything you can share with us afterwards, Pat, and we can pop links on, on the website about that. I mean, it's, um, it's, 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 it's embarrassing, but you can find out an awful lot from Wikipedia, really. Yeah. Um, if, you, if, you want to get, if you want to get familiar with some of the core equations about working out, for example, the present value of a future cash flow, um, you know, which is basically the, the, inertia, the inertia factor, um, uh, which I happen to know by heart, which is one over R times one minus one over one plus R to the N. Okay, that I think is probably the most useful equation in financial planning. You know, the present value of of of, of future cash flows. Um, Wikipedia is a really good place to start. Just you know, just go um, Google annuity factors, discount factors, present value, and there's a wealth of stuff you can learn. You know, in, in 10, 15 minutes from that, and just just personally, I've always done this. I've always resolved my 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 liability model into a present value, and compared it to my my stack of loot. 
and that's been very very helpful so i look i look all the time at the ratio between that between those two numbers and see what my wealth ratio is and if it's if it's i'm on the up or am i not or not or down and that might have an effect a bearing on my taking risk off the table that might push me towards being more conservative if i felt i was no longer able to take such extreme risks with where with where i was to maintain that but that's an interesting question whether whether if it dipped to you know 1.1 if the ratio between liability future value of liabilities to actual assets was less than 1.1 whether i'd change my behaviors i think i might mm. If your brain doesn't quite work like Pat's and you can't remember the, the calculation formula for present value, the easiest and simplest way to do it is just get an annuity quote. <laughs> just work yeah, that's out right, exactly. How, yeah, how yeah. much would it cost to buy yeah, yeah. X amount of yeah, pounds a year? That's right, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Obviously, you've got mortality drag built into that and profits for the life company. So it's not quite mm. exactly the same, but it's close enough. Um, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I, I, I completely endorse that, Richard. I think the the acid test on any investment strategy is looking back at the personalised annuity quote. You know, yeah. you know, if if your if your if your if your drawing yield is less than that, then you're in good you're in a good place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you know if you're if you're only taking five percent out and your annuity quote is seven, you're in a good spot. Yeah. I and that, as, a, that as an annual as an annual review cheat, that's not a bad place to begin. At. Yeah. Um, Sarah's put a um, quite contrarian comment in the chat, which I find quite interesting, saying that quantifying capacity for loss can be misleading, though, as there are too many future variables that are unknown. Give a client a fact and they will hold you to it. And there was a chat earlier on about assumptions. And, and I think it's worth reiterating that um, these are assumptions. And the only thing that's right about assumptions is that they're all going to be wrong. Sure. Um, so, yeah, yeah. so that's it. So, and it's about that education thing with the client. So you're not giving them a fact that's set in stone. You're giving them no. an assumption and an analysis at a particular point in time. And yeah. there's been a lot of comments and questions in the chat about when, how often do you update capacity for loss? And the general consensus tends to be at each annual review or earlier advice, advice point, if mm. needed, which mm. I totally mm. um, agree right. on that one. So if, um, I can, uh, if I can just jump in and say something in support of what Sarah said if you if you look year to year at the capital markets assumptions that are published by investment banks or big asset management companies you'll see them shift and you'll think oh hold on a second you know last year you told me it was 6.4 percent over the next 10 years now you're saying it's 5.7 you know that's kind of a big swing isn't it they do they do change but with with the mifid rules around around suitability you are looking at things every year and if you've broken people into the idea that things are going to you're going to you're going to have their affairs under close review you're going to be watching this is what this is what you're doing for them you're keeping your eyes open the headlights are on you're not driving in the dark you're seeing what's coming around the corner and you're relating market expectations back to what to do with their money i think that's that's great mm. um justin's put an interesting question um can someone have a different tolerance of risk for different pots um and I'd also extend that to a different capacity for loss mm. in different pots. What, what mm. do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, um, you know, somebody who's you know in their in their sixties will have long-term goals and short-term goals. And one of the one of the things about people and the mental accounting side of it all, you know, um, if I if I've got some money set aside for buying something in a few weeks time i'd be awfully cross if i didn't if it you know something went wrong with that you know disproportionately cross when the actual fact is irrelevant from the from in the big picture point of view so i 
I think that's true. I think it is true that people can have different attitudes to um, to, 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 to loss um, around, you know, short term needs and medium term needs, and long term needs. And, um, you know, especially capital events, if you found, for example, you wanted to buy a car and you were, I don't know, 400 pounds light, it, you know, you, it would be a, it would be more of a problem than losing four grand on your pension fund, probably in the in the in the, the crazy way that people's minds work. But uh, so I think I think that's a fair point. Yeah, I think that that's a uh, mix of opinions in the chat, it's fair to say, but generally people are saying, yeah, you can have a different view mm. um, around that one, um, which is good. Um, there's quite a bit of talk about um, client behaviour um, mm. and capacity for loss here. And really what, what a good advisor and, and planner is all about is um, not, um, I said not letting, but avoiding the client bailing out when things get bad. Um, mm. which comes down to the whole difference between capacity and tolerance doesn't it yeah um, yeah sometimes you, you can't you know you might explain and get a client to say they fully understand everything today and two years no, later when no, that's right. there's, there's trust <laughs> when this trust yeah. becomes yeah and things yeah. go mad yeah. for a few months yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you know what's going on so it's that, yeah. that behavior thing is still important isn't it yeah i think it's i think it's i think it's because of what advisors do which is to help people deal with their anxieties that inevitably there are going to be moments where some some clients just have lost their composure through 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 circumstances and and are going to put it on the advisor that the implicit clause in the in the in the in the, in the agreement was you will make things work out perfectly for me um, and I think that's just 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 tough and that's just the way it, the way it is it's it's uh, it seems terribly unfair when you're on the receiving end of those sorts of those gales of 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 um, of, uh, of discontent, but I think that's actually un- un- just you know it will happen, and it does it does happen. And the the point here is actually one of the one of the most interesting psychological aspects of or, or in this area is about this question of locus of control. Some some people just can't enter into trusting relationships. You're trying as an advisor or a power planner or anyone in this industry to build a trusting relationship. Some people will never shoulder their share of responsibility for the bargain. You know, it's just not in their nature to do that. They will say, yes, 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 yes. But actually, they didn't meet. They, in retrospect, they will have never meant that. And it was all down to you. And they, 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 they surely that wasn't that wasn't right. What you just what you what you told them to do. So, yeah, that is just um, part of the, the spectrum of people that you're going to meet in this in this industry, I'm afraid. Yeah, definitely. Um, very nice acronym from Nathan in the, uh, the chat there, which is uh, time, willingness, ability, need, and knowledge, which Nathan kindly shows us as being twank. So I'll call out that one. <laughs> Where'd you get that one? Um, so question, um, is capacity for loss relevant for savers as opposed to spenders? Save, savers. Yeah, so people that are like yeah, I think that... are still working and still building up their wealth. Yeah, I think I think the, the, the question there is, of course, about, about time frame, which comes back to the question about pots, doesn't it? You know that some somebody saving for a for a house deposit um, is probably got a much lower level of capacity for loss in that for that goal than they do for their pension. Yeah, um, if they if they're young, if they're at that stage of life, in their they're say in their thirties. Um, so uh, I think um, uh, yeah, I think you know you know if you're if you're building up for a goal which is which is short term at high risk, you're going to you're going to you're going to be in a in a in a, in a bit of a spot possibly, and you 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 ought to think about it in terms of attitude to risk and capacity for loss, um, figuring out how much you could afford to lose out of your 
out of your savings plan to meet the meet the goal. It's I think it's all consistent with what we've been saying, frankly, at that point. Yeah, and uh, one last question: Do you think drawdown is next on the FCA chopping block after consumer duty and defined benefit transfers? Well, well, I mean, um, after this presentation, I'm going to give a presentation to a room full of advisors about annuity versus drawdown, and my first slide is. Um, what are the two big regulatory um, uh, initiatives in this area? The first, obviously, is consumer duty, avoiding foreseeable harm. Well, that's relevant to drawdown, isn't it? Yeah. Supporting clients. Well, that's relevant to conversations you've been having about psychology and composure, um, value, value for money, um, design a product. Def- definitely in this complex area around retirement, retirement planning, consumer duty is really going to bite. And the second thing, of course, is their um, thematic review on advice around retirement. And in the context of, you know, um, annuities offering 4.7% index linked at 70, 65, um, you know, what price the 4% rule? You know, if you can do better by buying an annuity at 65, the discounting of that annuity option has got to be spot on. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um there's a closing comment in the chat about um, so clients can have different capacity for loss at different stages of their lives. Yeah, yeah, definitely mm, they can. Sure, definitely. Um, and Kayla's a big fan of a hippo over your shoulder, uh, Pat. This isn't actually Pat's office. It's Pat's in a hotel at the moment. <laughs> that's right, that's the, uh, yeah, yeah. So, that's right. Yeah, I mean, the, in, the, in the basement. Rather eclectic uh, knickknacks over his shoulder there. Um, well, mm. we've run out of time, unfortunately. That was fascinating, Pat. Thank you so much. Um, That's absolute pleasure. And knowledge there, and a lot of activity in the chat, which is always great to see some really good comments, questions, and answers in there. So, just a reminder, we've got a couple of in-person events coming up: one in Warwick and one in London. Um, you can book those on our website right now. Um, if you want to keep this conversation going, don't forget to hop over onto the Big Tent on our website, and uh, there's quite a bit on this already there. Uh, but you can add your comments and questions um, as much as you like on there. Massive thank you to Pat uh, for joining us once again here at the Assembly and also to our supporters this year. That's Aegon, Barnet Waddingham, Just, Energy Wealth, Parmenian, Timeline Transact and Wealth Time. Um, you can come back and watch the, the replay in the future if you want to. But for now, uh, it's goodbye from me and Pat and have a good afternoon. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye bye.